cut me off any time, Julia, but I mean, another example. No, I won't. I mean, this is so interesting. I don't want to cut you out. <laughs> this is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Julia, welcome to The Every Lawyer. In this episode, we take a look at the business of business and human rights and introduce the CBA BHR Guide. We are very pleased to have with us today one of the CBA BHR Guide's principal authors, Josh Scheinert. So welcome to The Every Lawyer, Josh. We're very pleased to have you here with us. Thank you. And of course, there's the star of the show, the CBA BHR Guide, providing in-depth actionable guidance for the Canadian legal profession on BHR. But before Before we get to that, we need to introduce the business of business and human rights. And to do that, we have invited investigative journalist Eric Zito, known for his work with W5CTV and CBC Marketplace. So welcome to The Every Lawyer, Eric. We're very pleased to have you here today with us. Thanks for having me. Is it the interest in this issue or the incidents of abuse or both that are on the rise right now? It's a good question. I think whether it's interest in the issue or incidents on the rise, I just can't say for sure, but I do know if you look close enough, there are problems in every industry. And, you know, perhaps we're hearing more about it because, you know, I think from a consumer perspective, expectations have shifted. Um, it's not about the quality of goods anymore. It's about the quality of human work behind them. So I think that's part of the equation as well. And you look at, you know, a lot of major companies now, they all have corporate social responsibility policies. You know, whether they adhere to them or not is another question. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I, I can't say for sure, but I do know that you know this, these types of issues do, if you look close enough, exist in every industry. Josh? I think there's a combination of factors that have converged at this moment. One is over the past several years, the discussion about what we expect from our corporations has broadened uh, specifically around the environment and climate change. A lot of people have discussed ESG and environment, social and governance factors. And so human rights fits neatly within the S uh, of ESG. And at the same time, the pandemic put a spotlight on supply chains in a way that nothing else had in the past. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about supply chains, consumers, businesses, regulators, everyone is trying to figure out where are our supply chains, who's involved in our supply chains, where are the materials coming from, where are the problems along this chain? And that's provided us further opportunity to examine where our, our goods are coming from, who they're coming from. Uh, and so I think the talk about supply chains over the past several years has really opened the door for us to, to have this conversation. Why does the Canadian legal profession need a business and human rights guide? I think because it's a new issue. It's not, you know, I was in law school a, a long time ago, 15 or so years ago, and, and this wasn't something that was taught. Uh, the notion that businesses have a responsibility to people besides their consumers or their shareholders uh, or, or their direct owners is, is, is not new, but the take up around that uh, and the amount of people who are now supporting that notion has really grown over the past several years. And so lawyers weren't necessarily focusing on that when they were providing their legal advice to their clients because it wasn't one of the traditional areas of, of legal advice that a business would get. So as this area of law took off and really developed, and that was something that happened at the international stage, not nationally here in Canada, um, many other jurisdictions advanced 
at a faster pace than we did here in Canada. And so as a result, the Canadian legal profession wasn't part of a discussion really that was happening at a global level at the UN or at different regional bodies. And now we're in a situation where you know, business and human rights law is, is real. Uh, it exists in jurisdictions around the world. There are laws, there are lawsuits, there are pledges that, that businesses have, have made in various disclosures. And the Canadian legal community uh, needs, to, need, needs to learn uh, what exactly this means, what it means for their clients, uh, and how it should impact the way they, they provide the you know, traditional advice to their business clients. What are some of the higher profile examples of Canadian business connections to human rights abuses in recent years? Josh, you mentioned this earlier, but the pandemic was really kind of a driving force for showing issues in supply chains and really bringing to light what is a supply chain. At the top of my head, you know, and this is stuff that we haven't reported, but it's been really great reporting done in Canada and the US. But I think about migrant workers who had come to Canada working on our farms, picking our food and the conditions they faced during the pandemic. But I think most notably was, and I think everyone's read about this, but the, the way Amazon workers are being treated during COVID, right? Forced, you know, not forced, but working long hours without proper protections during COVID, uh, which led to outbreaks across, I think it was in the US and I think maybe some in Canada, if I recall correctly. But in, in both examples, you know, companies were called out for their treatment of workers during what was kind of very tumultuous and profitable time for some of these companies. Eric's focused on examples here and without touching on specific companies, what I would say is also recently the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused a lot of companies here in Canada to question what are our connections to the Russian government and our operations in Russia and what does that mean and do we want to be a part of that? And it's forced companies at the boardroom level to really have serious conversations about where they're going to prioritize growth versus uh, values that that they uh, say they adhere to. Other recent situations around the world, there's the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, which the Canadian government has labeled as genocide. That's led to a host of new restrictions around the world regarding import of goods that have a suspected connection to uh, forced labor in Xinjiang province. That has caused a lot of companies here in Canada and globally to examine their supply chain to, to ensure they're not connected to that. So that would be another high-profile example where there's potential to have a connection to abuse. You know, for, for us and our team, in the past few years, we've been able to report on this issue, human rights and business, human rights, supply chains, and consumer kind of end product aspects of this. And, you know, we wanted to bring awareness to this. It's just the type of reporting that, that required to do this type of work is so hard and very few outlets can do this. So we were very, very fortunate at the CBC to be able to do this type of work. But one of the examples that we worked on recently, uh, you know, this is during the height of the second wave and we were started investigating PPE supply chains and found major issues with forced labor, especially in the glove sector. So this is material used by all sorts of healthcare workers, right? For everything from giving vaccinations to swab tests, like, you know, one doctor described this PPE as, as something that kept them alive. It, it saved lives. What we knew is that this PPE was being manufactured in Malaysia under these, these forced labor conditions that we were able to run by numerous experts and legal scholars. And it was ending up around the world, including Canada. And, and what we discovered also was some of these importers had contracts with the federal government to supply our healthcare system. 
So that was a revelation for us, especially to see that there's these contracts here with federal government and, and some issues obviously overseas. And that was one of the big examples recently that we looked at. And more recently is to what Josh mentioned earlier, we looked at Canada's food supply chain. We, we looked at, as an entry point, the, the multi-billion dollar tomato trade to kind of get into the food system. We wanted to find the human stories, just where we get our food, you know, something we're so often removed from because our only point of contact with food is our grocery stores. Our journey took us around the world. We were in Mexico, we were in Asia. And what we learned is China is one of the biggest producers of tomato paste in the world. And, and much of those tomatoes come from, as Josh was saying earlier, uh, with some of the forced labor aspects is, is Xinjiang. It's center of one of the worst human rights atrocities going on right now. Millions of Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities subject to re-education, internment, torture, sexual assault, forced labor by the Chinese Communist Party. Through our investigation, we could say with confidence that Uyghurs were being subject to these forced labor conditions. Uh, I recall one Uyghur we spoke to, we interviewed, you know, they, they were able to escape China, but he told us about his family who was still picking tomatoes in China every year, you know, almost a dozen family members. And if they didn't do this, if they didn't do what was requested of them, they would be fined or imprisoned, you know, or even worse, sent to these camps. Our, our next question was, where, where do these products go? Where are they ending up? Are they ending up in Canadian grocery stores? And so for us to uncover this complicated and complex web, you know, of supply chains, what we learned really, and I can sum it up very quickly is, here are these tomato products being produced in Xinjiang. They would never come directly to Canada. They would go to intermediary countries for further processing. So India, Italy, the Philippines, you know, these are turned into sauces, ketchups, and then they're being shipped around the world in places like Canada. And we saw them at almost kind of every shelf and every, almost every major, major supermarket in Canada. Same for Mexican workers who picked our fresh tomatoes. We saw problems with conditions they faced and they supplied. These companies they worked for supplied Canadian grocers. The, the issues are complex. The issues exist. I do want to note that of the grocery stores we found these products connected to, many of them also had human rights policies. How long does it take, you know, for instance, for this, this story to uh, uncover the web of all the supply chain? Because it must take a lot of time to build all this story. And is it essential to have like a hidden camera uh, or to have a covered approach when you're investigating? Or do you have like those, those information? I guess you cannot have them like... On a plate, you need to probably uh, be a bit undercover to do that. You know, this story was, it took us seven months to do. One of the longest projects I've worked on, but it was so multifaceted. And to your question, there was an element of undercover reporting that we needed to do for this story because this is information companies, you know, brokers, people just do not want to divulge. And so in this line of work that we do, especially these types of stories, surreptitious reporting is, is so critical to an investigation. You know, like how do you get a company or someone to talk to you about committing wrongdoing or tell you the unvarnished truth? You know, how would you do that without kind of being more surreptitious about it? So, you know, I think for our tomato investigation, we want to get access to these tomato plants in Xinjiang. We couldn't go there, of course because of COVID and there's just crazy safety elements to this. But, but what we wanted to do was get access in, to these companies that we knew were likely contributing to human rights abuses to the Uyghur population. So we spent a number of months. We set up a fake company, a fake website. We, we learned how to become tomato brokers. So we learned the lingo of becoming a tomato broker. Like it's going to school to become a tomato trader. Uh, we even created contracts to fake access 
to to you know fake business with these companies. We we contacted them. We you know we made it seem like we were legit, and we got access to these companies in Shenzhen. We got these virtual tours and access that I don't think anybody's ever had before to these tomato fields that they pick tomatoes from, to factories that I don't that I don't think anybody, unless you're going there in person as real business people, are getting access to. It was incredible. Like you know, I think through that undercover reporting, we were able to confirm what companies these they exported their tomatoes to what countries they went to. We were able to confront them about some of the allegations that were made about Uyghur abuse. And although you know they all denied this, but we were, these are things that we would not be able to do in person in a more direct route without the therapeutic reporting. Could we have gotten those answers and that access without that undercover aspect? I don't, I don't think so. No. Yeah, I feel, wow, this is really like, I feel like you're a spy or something. Uh, <laughs> very, very impressive. And, I do feel like that sometimes. Yeah, right? I'm sure you do. Um, and to quote directly from the very great CBA BHR guide, businesses, including their subsidiaries and partners, are not isolated from the societies in which they operate, nor are they insulated from events occurring in places where they secure raw materials and other goods. Could we talk more about the word isolated here today, quote unquote, isolated? So when we say isolated, it's, it's we're not saying that you are ignoring deliberately what has gone on in the world around you, but no one has really turned your attention to it. And so now what business and human rights as a field is trying to do is take away those blinders, stop the tunnel vision and say, okay, there's regulatory compliance and you have to follow what local laws require of you and what your home jurisdiction laws require of you. But there's more. There's a broader community here. And if you're operating in a state that doesn't have strong regulation when it comes to social and environmental human rights protections, then we expect you to recognize that and do more. Really, this has been an effort to get companies and their legal advisors uh, and also governments, Canada and governments around the world, to think more comprehensively about what does it mean for a business, oftentimes a multinational with significant resources and a significant ability to have either an adverse or a positive impact on a local community. What does it mean for us to operate there? What does it mean for us to be connected to this place or this community? I, I, just, to, just to jump in, I think, Josh, to, you know, I was just thinking when you were saying that is all, companies often don't do those things unless they're forced to. They're not willingly going to spend more money to add more layers of bureaucracy or, you know, work to something that, you know, I, I guess I'm just trying to think of, you know, when you say that, I just think I, I, from what I've encountered, it's often, unless they're faced with that problem, they're not going to deal with it or they won't deal with it at the, at the forefront. But maybe I'm just totally wrong on this, but tell me what you think. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree, but, but I think we're almost talking at, at two different points here. I, I think what we're saying kind of run parallel to each other because first is, What is business and human rights as a field trying to do? So very directly, it's trying to ensure that transnational businesses are not complicit in or causing or connected to human rights abuses. Uh, and when those human rights abuses do happen, that there's access to a remedy for individuals whose human rights have been violated. But in doing that more broadly, what it's trying to do is, I think, like I said before, get businesses and governments, you know, regulators to think more comprehensively about what business operations mean and what they can do. And then what you said follows neatly because then it's okay. So how do we get a business to do that? Is having a conversation enough? Maybe for some businesses it is, 
uh, and maybe for other businesses, it won't be. Oftentimes, businesses will say, you know, I have competing responsibilities. We have limited resources. We, our shareholders are demanding this or our board is demanding that. Can you point me to a regulation so I can show people that, yes, I have to do this. This is what I'm required to do either by the regulation in my home jurisdiction, whether that's Canada or anywhere else, or by the host country's jurisdiction. Because right now, I don't have the resources, like you said, to go above and beyond what what I'm required to do. So, So I don't think... Our, our points are necessarily mutually exclusive. Where do you think it comes from, th this sense of uh, being disconnected uh, from society? I, so I don't want to speak for businesses because I'm not, A, a business person, and B, that's a broad term. But what I would say is, you know, I think traditionally there was a very specific notion of what a business was, who it's responsible for, and what its objective was to do. I think over the past couple decades, that's been harder to support, that a business is this isolated you know, entity that's just a profit making machine or, or goods producing machine. So I think businesses, for the most part, all recognize that they are a part of the communities in which they operate. First off, if you're operating anywhere, you're going to be dependent on that community for, for employees, for support. If you're just sourcing a good from a local community, you're dependent on that community to produce the good. So you're not isolated. Nor do I think that businesses are indifferent to the, the fate for the most part, of the communities and places in which they operate. Because as much as there, there might have been and still be to an extent competing factors driving business decisions about ways in which they operate, ultimately, I, I don't think most businesses want to find out that we were operating in that factory. I don't think businesses want to know that we have sold those goods to consumers. So it's, it's taking that end goal of you don't want to be this company, you want to be this company instead, So how do we bring your operations further in line with that objective if they're not already there? And for decades, uh, profit motives and economic expediency have been seen as the great equalizers and the only things that can provide an objective basis for public and corporate policy. Is the profit motive solely to blame here? I'll just come in quickly saying no. Uh, there's, there's also the consumption model. You know, we, we can't just talk about businesses. Businesses serve a number of stakeholders. They serve shareholders, they serve owners if they're privately held, but they also serve consumers. And we, you know, we had the discussion back when I was a child about sweatshops uh, in, in the apparel industry. I'm not sure what happened to that discussion. I, I'm not sure it ever ended conclusively with a result or a, a commitment. Um, but tell consumers that if you want this good produced ethically, If you want this worker treated responsibly in a manner that you would accept for yourself, then you're going to have to pay more for that. Uh, and, and that's a very big part of the conversation that's missing, I think. I was thinking the same thing. You know, I'm going to flip this and, and say, what role does a consumer have kind of to this race to the bottom? You know, if one company starts to sell something for less, people will buy the cheaper product. Another company follows suit. But the only way to make that happen and to lower prices, to cut corners, to To, to cut you know labor costs and it kind of is a vicious cycle to that kind of that rock bottom price right and so who's the one that gets squeezed it's the, it's the worker at the other end with the least leverage because consumers don't want to pay more so yeah it's it's true it's it's bringing awareness it's making people think twice about that 99 cent product and 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 why it might be so cheap Achievability in French which I would say in English is like buying is voting or something like that so the, the impact of when you buy something 
uh, and to think about it uh, very much before buying. So I do think as well, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, I would agree. I mean, I think education and bringing public awareness about how supply chains is kind of the work we're trying to do, creating this stuff. The more you think about, the more you know about it, the more you'll think twice. Um, you know, I think that's definitely a part of it. Like a guy, for instance, so about lawyers yeah. educating themselves and their clients. Another question is something that I know uh, come in my work as well, because I, I work in human rights as well, and something that come, can come up often is, you know, the idea that there might be a different cultural understanding of what is a human rights abuse. And do you think this can have an impact? I'll just jump in first as, as the lawyer who studied human rights and international human rights. There, there's no different declaration of human rights depending on where an individual lives or where they're born. Uh, human rights are, are universal. Uh, rights to equality, to dignity, to have your life and privacy and family respected. Uh, fair, fair work conditions. That, that's not subjective. How that necessarily plays out in different parts of the world, of course, we recognize that there can be differences around work conditions or remuneration for that matter. But no, human rights are human rights. Uh, we're all entitled to them. Full stop. Yeah, totally. I would not add anything. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. So now, I finally, as promised, uh, let's have a closer look at the CBA's BHR guide. First, can you please walk us through uh, the process of creating this guide? Where does it come from? Sure. Uh, there was one of the things, let me start from the beginning. Uh, one of the things some other lawyers in Canada that, that I was connected to with uh, would frequently talk about was that we wish there was greater awareness within the legal profession for this emerging area of law. And business and human rights is not unique in that sense. Any new area in the law is going to take time for us uh, to catch on. In the international field, that related to corrupt, you know, anti-bribery and corruption, questions around compliance with sanctions, all of that kind of stuff. So business and human rights is not unique in that sense. But we thought, you know, how do we bring this about more quickly? And then there was a report as part of the United Nations business and human rights process, uh, for lack of a better term. And they actually singled out business lawyers as being resistant to notions of business and human rights legal advice because it conflicted with what they thought their traditional role and responsibility was towards their clients. So then me and some other lawyers got together and we said, okay, let, let's try and put something together for the, the legal community here to ensure that Canadian lawyers are, are not being seen as the resistance. Uh, we wanted to join up and put our mark out there with other bar associations. There's other bar associations around the world, uh, in the UK, in the US, uh, in Japan, the International Bar Association have all come out and put together similar guides like this for their members to ensure that they are ready to provide this type of advice. Uh, and then together with a colleague of mine, Claudia Feldkamp, she's a lawyer here in Toronto at, at Baskins, uh, who's been very active on this for years. We've put together a small working group of other lawyers uh, who, with specialized knowledge in this field. And together with some other CBA volunteers, we, we drafted the guide. I, I looked at the guide uh, and I understand that it is divided in different sections. Yeah. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit more how they can navigate it? Because I feel there's many sections where if you want to look at some topics in particular. Sure. The guide is meant to be very practical and an introduction to the field. It is what is business and human rights? What does this mean? 
for a Canadian lawyer. You know, we talk about Canadian lawyers' professional obligations and different rules of professional conduct that we have to go by and how providing this type of advice fits within that. So, you know, we situate business and human rights as, as something within the Canadian legal framework that, that lawyers should be paying attention to. And then we answer practically, well, what does this mean? Number one, why is it important to me and to my clients? So what are some of the different risk areas? And we run through those different types of, whether it's legal risk or financial risk. We go over the field, how it's evolving, different ways that business and human rights is being regulated, uh, both in Canada and globally. Uh, legislation, regulations around trade and procurement. And then we give an overview of, you know, specifically what's been happening here in Canada. And we explore the main factors that have been influencing business and human rights here in Canada. And we talk about legislative and policy initiatives. And, and even that is now outdated because it appears the Canadian government is now one vote away in the House of Commons from passing uh, a law related to business and human rights. So we'll have to have an update. Uh, we talk about disputes. There's been a number of, you know, high profile litigations here in Canada where foreign litigants have tried to bring a lawsuit against the Canadian company saying our human rights have been abused abroad in connection with, with your business operations. And then we talk about different international factors that have been influencing Canada. And so this is all to give lawyers just that, that framework from which they can appreciate this is real. It's happening. Here's the basics that I need to know. And it gives them almost a guide or a roadmap to do a deeper dive for when they spot potential issues or a need to give that kind of advice to their their clients. I was honestly very impressed. I mean, when you say practical, I feel I, I would hope so. You know, seriously, it was very, I looked at it and I was like, because you know, you have the links, hyperlinks, you can go, you can go check it out. It's very, very easy to use as well. Very clear uh, for a rookie like me. I mean, it was very nice. So I really encourage listeners to go and read it or read the parts that they think would be interesting for them. Uh, and but my question was because I, I saw it was in 2021, so I was like, okay, so it's probably probably very up to date. But how will you keep it up to date? Do you expect to do it every year or to maybe have uh, every two years? Uh, we we haven't settled on a time period, uh, but we've decided a design. I combined the discussed and decided, but we had discussed, you know, about once a year, at least uh, the guide should be updated. And it came out, I think, in December of 2021. And, you know, I don't know the parliamentary timetable and the schedule for bringing bills to a vote. And, and the, the draft bill is now with a, a House standing committee. So I also don't know how long that takes, but there's probably a decent chance that by the end of this calendar year, so that would be a one year anniversary, that we could provide an update to reflect any legislative developments here in Canada. So it will be updated and we want it to be something that people can keep returning to. It's also going to be easier to update different links. You know, if a new report comes out, you know, we'll just we'll add that to the, the resources section. And talking about Canada, so do you feel like Canada is setting uh, the example when it comes to preventing business complicity in human rights violations? That depends on who you speak to. Okay. <laughs> I'll be curious to hear what Eric has to say, having gone ab abroad and, and really thought about this and, and reported on it. I would say Canada has experimented with several initiatives to try and regulate and enhance business conduct abroad vis-a-vis -vis human rights protection. They had a number of strategies going back to uh, Prime Minister Harper, and it has culminated right now in what appears to be a, a piece of legislation. While Canada has experimented with its different initiatives, 
other jurisdictions have come out with more forceful legislation uh, right out of the gate and did not spend as much time trying to come up with a policy initiative minus legislation. So other jurisdictions came out and recognized, much like Eric said, that without a law, without a requirement to do something, uh, businesses might be a little reticent to do this. So whether Canada has led or not up until now, I think depends on one's perspective. But what I would say is it appears that Canada is ready to join other like-minded nations in ensuring that businesses going forward are thinking about and taking these issues seriously. The question will then be what happens with the legislation. How well is it adhered to? If there are serious gaps in adherence to the legislation, will there be enforcement? What will civil society do to shine a spotlight on businesses that are not fully complying with the legislation or whose disclosures reveal problems that are not being properly addressed? So we, we're setting ourselves up for the potential to do good and be in a good place. Where we go from there remains to be seen. Yeah, I think just to the original question as Canada, setting an example, you know, we weren't leading the way for sure. And I think if you talk to many advocates, they still believe Canada is quite behind the U.S., you know, in, in many respects leads the world in this. They tell me that more needs to be done for supply chain, supply chain due diligence and lacking laws, like Josh was saying, modern slavery legislation that would force companies basically to produce annual reports, right, on the supply chains to make sure there's no forced labor, amongst other things. And there's been criticisms for that, but it, and a lot of starts and turns and twists and turns for this legislation, but it's something. I, I think there's been progress made in the sense of when the new Kuzma agreement, the new North American Free Trade Agreement was signed, here was an amendment to our Customs Tariff Act, basically prohibiting forced labor goods from entering Canada. That was monumental. Like, you know, like back before then, we didn't have that type of rule in place. Like, I don't know if it's a rule or if it's a policy or a law, but we didn't have that. And it was a new, it was a new regime for the federal government. I think this is a new framework for the federal government as well, kind of catching up, I think, a little bit with the, with the U.S., I think with Australia or France, I think they've led, they've led a little bit like that. But you know, it's it's funny because I look back at this, and part of our stories when we looked at the PPE stuff and the tomato trade is okay. Federal government has this amendment to prohibit forced labor goods now coming into Canada because of Kuzma. Have they done anything about it? Have they enacted it? Have they have they used the trade tariff? And they, despite our reporting, it never been used, and only I think. Last year, late last year, had it been used once, and it was for a shipment that came from China. I think it was clothing. It's it's one of those things where we have these rules in place, but they're not being used. So, so I think it's progress, but I think you know, we talk to many advocates. There's there's always more that can be done. And that's the thing. You know, we talk about resources that businesses need to allocate to this. There's also on the regulatory side, resources have to come there. One of the things people wondered about before Canada had legislation was what is passing legislation any use if we don't have the means to enforce it. You know, we have to be realistic about what our capacities are. We're not the U.S. We don't have the level of customs enforcement that the U.S. does. The U.S. Department of Labor, you know, first off, produces a, a list of goods globally produced or suspected to be produced with forced or child labor. We don't do that. We don't have the means to do that, to go, and they do this, you know, by good, by location, by factory level. We're just not at that level. And so we also have to be realistic and practical in our outlook. And that's not to say you just give up and throw in the towel. Absolutely not. 
but different countries will have to approach this differently. The U.S. definitely had a head start. They made it to 100 years, right? Uh, but, but in the sense of there's a new framework involved, and absolutely, you're, you're totally right. How long does it take to get that in motion, to make it so that it's effective, that it's having an impact? That, that's for sure a factor, because it's such a new regimen, I for sure, that I think it's having. That's why it may be taking a little bit longer. I will also say that, that one other thing that has, I think, delayed this has been the pace of the courts and litigation. The litigations all moved very slowly when foreign groups were were suing Canadian companies. A number of them settled, which is revealing in and of itself. You know, the companies did not, it it was decided that those cases should not go to trial uh, and, and that a settlement should be reached. But that also meant that in all these years where many people, including in civil society and, and maybe even in government, you know, we're waiting to see what are the courts going to say about the liability and, and any duty of care that's owed to foreign groups by a Canadian business. There's no firm pronouncement on that yet, you know, nearly a decade uh, into these types of litigations. And so that's been frustrating. So, well, thank you, actually. I love because both of your answers are very, you know, it gives a, a good idea because that's kind of a broad question is Canada setting data. And I kind of feel like you're both giving a good good views. So thank you very much. My last question for you about the BHR guide. So now that the guide is on the CBA's website for free, what impacts do you expect it will have on the legal practice in Canada? There's expect and hope. Those are two different things. No, I, I hope that, that people will read this and, and people will react, you know, there's a natural human reaction that says, yes, of course, this makes sense. I, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this movement. I want to be a part of advising my clients to help be more positive corporate citizens, both here and abroad. What do I expect will happen? I think realistically, hopefully more lawyers pick this up and say, this is something I'm going to keep in the back of my head. And if an issue arises, this can maybe give me a roadmap as to how we can navigate our way through a, a challenging situation and for them to know that they have a role to play as lawyers in, in assisting their clients navigate this. Well, thank you very much, uh, both of you, Eric and Josh, for your time and your help as well in producing this episode of The Every Lawyer. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Uh, give it a rating or get back to us directly via cba.org and hit subscribe for more CBA podcasts. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. 